Don't ask me what I feel about myself. Ask me what I know about God. Ask me what I know about his word. I just realized something. He wasn't sleeping on a pillow. He was sleeping on purpose. Something to say I think is important but not essential would be like the inerrancy of scripture. Um, oh, wow. And okay. I hold to the inerrancy of scripture. Okay. The title of my sermon tonight is Why Church Nurseries Are Unscriptural and Wrong. And so that's why I have a baby on my hip right here. There is a level of anointing that I believe is going to invade your homes, invade your sight, invade your senses. Um, that's going to, I literally feel that chains are going to break off of you. Do you think I'm wrong? Yeah. Yeah. Yay. So am I a bad guy for saying you're wrong? Yeah. I am? Yeah. <laughs> that's not fair. Hey, by the way, you are a slave. If you're not a slave of Christ, you're a slave of sin. You aren't free. Choose your master. Give us some men who know the truth. Hello and welcome back to the Do Theology Podcast. My name is Jeremy. Today I'm starting a new short series where we examine some claims and definitive aspects of covenant theology and critique those things from a dispensational perspective so that you can see the differences between covenant theology and dispensationalism. Does that sound like fun? (laughs) Well, we're living up to our name here and we're doing theology. We're getting deep into theology. Covenant theology and dispensationalism are, are two systems of theology that seek to look at what God has revealed about his program in the world from eternity past to eternity future, what he's doing, uh, not just in the world, really, but before creation and into new creation. So these are two massive systems of theology that contain many, many things. And even though this is like a flyby where we're looking at these two systems side by side, um, it's still going to take a while because there's just a lot. There's just a lot. And um, Ken and I, of course, are more from a dispensational perspective since, as I mentioned, I'm going to be critiquing the covenant side of things. And uh, I really don't like the term dispensationalism, but it is what it is. And, it, and if you're, you're foggy on what that is and what covenant theology is, you'll, just, you'll see over time as we go along. Uh, a couple of things I want to mention as we get started in this endeavor today. Uh, first is that I'm obviously just one man, and I'm going to word things sometimes that you aren't going to like, no matter what perspective you're coming from. That's just the way it is. And if you have issue with the way I go about wording things, you can let us know. But I'm probably still going to disagree with you, just so you know. And it's okay. It's okay. Everyone will be fine. (laughs) Right? And if you really don't like what I'm saying, just shut me off and never listen to me again. There you go. All right? Just wanted to let you know that's an option. I appreciate you listening and watching if you're on YouTube, which by the way, watching on YouTube is going to be really helpful for this because I'm going to put this stuff up on the screen that I'm going to read. Um, Talk about that here in a second, but watching on YouTube is really helpful for this. I wanted to throw that out there, but I I appreciate you listening and watching. You don't have to, you don't have to. If I make you too grumpy, just leave and it'll be okay. Another thing that I want to mention here is that uh, this is based off of a table I made for our church. So it's a table that is multiple pages. It walks through what covenant theology is and offers a dispensational critique um, line by line. And I made this because we had some families in our church that, I shouldn't say converted, but you could say transitioned to covenant theology or started to embrace covenant theology. And so they decided to leave and find a reformed church. And um, when they left, we, of course, had the rest of our church wondering, what was that all about? And so on Wednesday nights, we went through and, and taught this table, essentially. There was a lot of stuff we taught, but uh, this table was a big part of that where we're saying, okay, well, here's what this system is, and here's what we believe, and put it side by side. Uh, maybe at the end of this little series, I'll make this table available that you can check out and uh, download on your own if you aren't so upset by the way I phrase things. See how I'm really trying to get ahead here of you know, how people are going to be sensitive to the way things are worded. 
Well, that's not going to stop conflict from happening. That will still occur, and that's okay. Um, So yeah, wanted to give those disclaimers up front. And I should mention, too, that this episode is brought to you by the Do Theology store. Go to store.dotheology.com where you can find hoodies, t-shirts, mugs, stickers, tumblers, all kinds of stuff. And you can support our podcast that way by purchasing a piece of merch and advertising us when you're out on the town here in the, the cold of winter wearing one of our hoodies. Wouldn't that be cool? You could also support us on a monthly basis by quote unquote buying us a coffee. It's this cute little way of just, you know, supporting us with $3 a month, $5 a month, whatever the case may be. There's a link in the description for that. Buy us a coffee, sign up that $3 a month would go to the do theology podcast. So that maybe one day I could get the microphone I want instead of this old praise band microphone that I've been using for our podcast. (laughs) I really, really want an Electra voice RE 20 microphone, but they're expensive. So putting pennies in a jar, and by the time I'm all out of ideas for this podcast, I'll be able to afford it. All right, store.dotheology.com. Support us. That'd be great. Here we go. Let's get into the differences between covenant theology and dispensationalism. Today, we'll be covering hermeneutics, and we'll be covering the covenants. That's all. That's all. We can knock this out in 15 minutes. The title that I put on this uh, table, by the way, I tried to get real cutesy with it. It's like a, a puritanical, puritanical, yeah, a puritan-like title that I wanted to give it. Um, this was my way of inserting some humor into the situation, though I don't know how many people find it funny. It's a very heavy topic that we're talking about, systems of theology, so I thought I would do something to try to lighten the load. I put, an examination of covenant theology distinctives with critique or a biblical and philosophical dispensational response to reform theological claims of soteriological and ecclesiological nature as articulated in the latter second and early third millennia AD. I'm stupid, I know, but I have fun in my stupidity. I'm having a good time if no one else is. All right, well, let's get into it. What are the differences between covenant theology and dispensationalism? Let's get into the definitions of covenant theology from these different aspects, and then let's provide a critique that someone like me would provide. All right, starts with hermeneutics. It has to start with hermeneutics. If you're on YouTube, here it is up on the screen so you can see it in uh, in one shot here, read it on your own. The topic is hermeneutics. Here's where covenant theologians are coming from. Definition I've provided says... Covenant theology uses different hermeneutics for the Old Testament and the New Testament. After interpreting the New Testament normally, theological conclusions from there are projected onto Old Testament prophecies to bring out hidden spiritual meanings unknown to the Old Testament's authors. This method is sometimes called New Testament priority hermeneutics or census plenier hermeneutics. Census plenier meaning fuller meaning. All right, so we've talked about this some on the show before, and you can check out our episode, for example, uh, Does the Bible Have Hidden Meanings, or Does the Old Testament Have Hidden Meanings, or Does God Use Hidden Meanings? I can't remember what I titled it, but it was a fairly recent episode where I did a bit of a deeper dive on that, because a lot of people who are in the covenant theology camp, the Reformed camp, don't like it when I summarize their hermeneutical approach in this way. I mean, the very first sentence, covenant theology uses different hermeneutics for the Old Testament and the New Testament. A lot of people would take issue with that. However, there's really not an issue with that. That's just what it is. They wouldn't word it that way, but I'm wording it that way because that's what I keep encountering as I study how covenant theologians go about doing theology. So uh, again, as I said here in this definition, after interpreting the New Testament normally— What the covenant theologian does is he takes theological conclusions from there, from the New Testament realm, from the latter third of the Bible, takes theological conclusions from there and projects them back onto Old Testament prophecies to bring out hidden spiritual meanings that were unknown to the original Old Testament authors. So this is really uh, like storyline stuff. If you're reading through the Old Testament, 
and you start at Genesis, for example, in your reading Old Testament history, you see the formation of Israel, and you see the covenants made to Israel, and the promises and the prophecies regarding Israel. And there's this like uh, trajectory that's set with the storyline about where this is all going. The prophets were constantly doing two things, calling Israel to repentance because of their sin, yet giving them hope for restoration based on unconditional promises made by God, calling them to repentance, giving them hope of restoration. Over and over again, that's happening. And so even as Israel like just goes down in flames and crumbles, the, two, the kingdom splits, and Assyrians and Babylonians and Medo-Persians and all this stuff's going on, and it's just bleh, bad, you still have this hope from God that is undergirding all of that destruction, all of that bad stuff, this promise from God that one day the nation will be restored. Well, what the covenant theologian does is he isn't necessarily interested in going to the Old Testament first, interpreting that first, locking that interpretation in and saying that is exactly what that means and that's all that that's ever going to mean is that national Israel is going to be restored one day. Instead, the covenant theologian is more comfortable going to the New Testament, seeing the teachings of Jesus, the writings of the apostles, deducing from there that God is primarily interested in the church. And then he's going to go back to the Old Testament and say, yeah, the prophets, they were seeing this national Israel stuff, this hope for Israel, uh, the sons of Jacob, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Yeah, they were seeing that. But really the fuller meaning of that is Jesus's church that has been established by his blood. And really, and we'll get to this next time, really that Israel was the church, and the church today is Israel. And so instead of this concept of, you know, Israel's going along as a national entity, well, God puts a pause on that, and now he's building his church, and one day he's going to go back to focus his attention on national Israel. Instead of that view, the covenant theologian's saying, no, there's a lot more continuity to this where uh, the Old Testament prophets were wrapped up in this idea of Israel because that's all they knew at the time, whereas you know God had something bigger going on, something fuller and deeper going on that they didn't know about. And in their prophecies, when they were talking about a restoration of Israel, it was actually talking about this building of the church. All right, that's where they're coming from. So New Testament gets priority. Theological conclusions are drawn from the New Testament, and then back to the Old Testament, they go to project those conclusions onto the Old Testament prophets. That's what's happening. Well, um, let's consider now, let me pull up the critique, and let's consider a different way of understanding hermeneutics as opposed to the New Testament priority method. Here's the dispensational critique of where the covenant theologians coming from to grasp the Bible storyline. Scripture should be read progressively and theology should be developed following progressive revelation using one hermeneutic covenant. Theology must abandon normal interpretation of the old Testament to comport with their system. This approach does not allow the old Testament to mean what it says. Thus, it fundamentally alters the trajectory of God's revealed program for Israel as declared through the Old Testament prophets. So, uh, what the covenant theologian will say to more dispensational people like me or like Ken, what he's going to say is, look, you've got this, you're chopping the Bible up. It's all about discontinuity with you. If one, at, you know, at this time, God's looking at Israel and saying, okay, I'm focused on Israel. And then he says, you know what? go off to the side, go to the corner for a while. Now I'm going to focus on the church. And then now he's over here doing his stuff with the church. And then he's going to suck them out of here with the rapture. Zoop, up they go. And then he's going to go back to Israel. And then he's got like two peoples going on and they have two different destinies and how's, you know, it's, it's all just chopped up. And of course, what's baked into that is this assumption that discontinuity is bad, which that presupposition should be questioned, right? Um, but the covenant theologian is going to say, look, doesn't it make more sense? And aren't you much more comfortable with this idea that 
there's one flowing storyline. And even though the Old Testament prophets were saying things like, yeah, the cities will all be rebuilt. And yes, even after the Babylonian exile and even after the return to Jerusalem to build the wall and the temple, they were promising all these national things that would happen in agricultural blessings and dwelling on their soil forever and ever. Yeah, they were saying all that, but isn't it better to recognize that the real meaning of that was spiritually Jesus was going to come and die for us and fulfill all righteousness for us. And we would be the recipients of all of those Old Testament promises in a spiritual sense because the spiritual meaning was really the true meaning all along. And the dispensationalist is going to say, no, that's not better. The problem is that the problem with, with that pitch from the covenant theology side of things is that you're abandoning the plain meaning of words. And when God makes promises to Israel, for example, when God is making covenants with this nation that he made, when God is, is giving them prophecies, I believe he expects them to hang on his every word. And I believe that he's speaking to them in words that they understand, in language that they'll get, that he will will communicate to them in a plain sense way so that they would believe what he has said. And to go back and to say, no, he wasn't speaking in a plain sense way. There was a fuller meaning that was hidden from them. To me, that, that undermines, that undercuts what we believe about how God leads us in faith. He, he leads us by his word. He calls us to pay attention to his word. He calls us to focus on his word. And when he was setting up this trajectory for Israel through the Old Testament, as the narrative went along and he was saying, there will be latter days when Israel will come back to the land, I'm going to use the same hermeneutic for those passages that I do in the New Testament. I, I'm not going to reinterpret who the sons of Jacob are. I'm not going to reinterpret what the land is for Israel. I'm going to go back to Genesis 13, for example, and see the land that God gave to Abram and say, that's the land he's talking about. I'm going to go back and see who he means by Abram, Isaac, and Jacob and their sons, and those sons being the nation of Israel. And I'm, I'm going to believe that. I'm going to see these prophecies like in Jeremiah, where it says in Jeremiah 23, verses 5 to 8, that Israel will be brought back to their land and dwell on their own soil. And this restoration in the land, this return to the land is going to overshadow the exodus from Egypt. It's an event that hasn't happened yet, and I believe it's going to happen because I'm using the same hermeneutic there that I use in the New Testament. I'm not going to do the two hermeneutic system. I, I can't do it. I'm not going to say that the New Testament gets priority over the old. Uh, I'm going to say it's all equal here, and that, if anything, the New Testament is built on the foundation of the Old Testament. Those first 39 books come first for a reason. The first two thirds of the Bible builds to the, to the latter third. And, and when, um, by the way, I should mention too, let's, let's put this back up on the screen so you can read that again. If you'd like, I should mention that when the term new Testament priority is used, and this is their language, it's not my language, it's their language. When the term new Testament priority is used, What's being assumed there is that the New Testament itself, the apostles who make up the writings of the New Testament, the apostles are taking the Old Testament and reinterpreting them or giving new meaning to them or, you know, however you want to say it, they are changing fundamentally what was believed about them beforehand. And I don't think that's happening either. So you have to have a couple things going on in the covenant theology system regarding hermeneutics. You've got to have what I just said, the New Testament reinterpreting the old and providing that example for us, which I don't think it does, but you have to have that going on. And you also have to have uh, this view that words can be shifted around. Prophecies can be kind of, tw not twisted, because I don't want to say they're Bible twisters, but, but prophecies can be uh, reshaped to fit the theological narrative that we've come to uh, conclude, I guess, that if we've come to believe that there is no future for Israel, well, we can go back to the Old Testament and, and we're allowed by God 
to kind of shift it around when it comes to the meaning or to, or to shape and fashion those prophecies to fit what we think. So, for example, that, that Jeremiah 23, 5 through 8 uh, uh, passage that I was just referencing about Israel coming back to the land and it will overshadow, in fame, it will overshadow the exodus from Egypt. You have to believe in the covenant theology system that you have license from God to go back and to say, um, yeah, but that is actually talking about Jesus building his church from every tribe, tongue, and nation, or, or something like that, that that the church will inherit the earth, and that's the land that he's talking about, and the church will be more famous than the exodus from Egypt. And you have to be able to go back and, and shift it around that way. Um, and I don't think we're allowed to do that. All right? So those uh, are the big headline issues when it comes to hermeneutics and the differences between covenant theology and dispensationalism. Well, let's get to the covenants, shall we? And these we can go through pretty quickly. Hermeneutics is the most important issue when we talk about these things. And so I wanted to spend a good deal of time talking through that. But uh, now let's talk about the covenants. And for covenant theology, they start with the covenant of redemption. Covenant theology has three covenants, beginning with this one, the covenant of redemption. And here's the definition from covenant theology. In eternity past, a covenant was made between at least the Father and the Son. Some also include the Spirit. Agreeing to accomplish man's salvation in the world that would be created and subsequently corrupted by sin. The Father elected a people to give to the Son. The Son agreed to take the place of those whom the Father gave. And in Latin, this is known as the pactum salutis. Perhaps you've come across that term, pactum salutis. Well, it's the uh, term for covenant of redemption, the covenant of redemption. God the Father, God the Son, making a covenant together to redeem a people, and they would play different roles in the salvation of man. So you might wonder, uh, what's the problem with that? Well, before we uh, get into the critique, there is one more thing I want to share with you. This is a quote. I have a few quotes I want to share today. This is one from Michael Horton, and my head is blocking his name a little bit, but this is from his book, Introducing Covenant Theology, pages 45 and 80. And Michael Horton says this about the covenant of redemption. He says, even in the covenant of redemption, that pact made between the persons of the Godhead in eternity, the elect were given to the Son as a reward for the obedience that he would render on their behalf in both his life and his death, as well as in his resurrection. Victory over the enemies of God and his people, even before creation and the fall, the elect were in Christ in terms of the divine purpose for history, though not yet in history itself. I'll read that last part again. Even before creation and the fall, the elect were in Christ in terms of the divine purpose for history, though not yet in history itself. Okay, well, that's important. His commentary on that, and Michael Horton is someone who's certainly qualified to speak on covenant theology. And uh, you, you might still be wondering, well, what's, what's the problem here? Well, let's just go ahead and jump to the critique, and then I'll add some more commentary. Uh, so the critique that I have to offer to the covenant of redemption is not super, you know, uh, intense. I'd say our hermeneutic discussion is pretty intense. This one's not super intense. But here's my critique. Such a covenant is not described in the Bible. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I crack myself up. Okay, that's the first line. My first critique is that such a covenant is not described in the Bible. Although it is true that the Father elected a people to give to the Son, the persons of the Godhead would not need to make a covenant to establish such an agreement. There is no higher rank or dubious partner that would necessitate a covenant within the Godhead. All right, so my critique is basically twofold. Uh, number one, we don't have this covenant in the Bible. We have God electing persons before the foundation of the world. We have definitely have that in the Bible. We have the Father giving persons to the Son. In the Gospel of John, Jesus talks about this. That's happening in the Bible. Okay, so those things don't deny at all that the Bible talks about those things. 
Um, but we don't have the Bible talking about a covenant made between the two in eternity past, that the Father and Son, and I think most probably take the view that it's Father and Son, not Father, Son, and Spirit. So don't really know how that would work if the Spirit was left out. I think that introduces a bag of issues. But we don't have the Bible talking about Father and Son going into covenant with each other before the world was. So that's problem number one. Call me a Biblicist if you want. I don't care. Problem number two is, philosophically, how does that work? The Father and Son make a covenant with one another? Uh, Covenants are made because you've got this higher rank who's making a covenant with a lower rank, or you've got two people who are in some way uh, able to renege on a promise and a covenant keeps them accountable. You have someone who's dubious, who you can't trust, or you've just got two fallen people who are prone to wander. Uh, Well, the father and son, none of that applies to the father and son. And so why would there need to be a covenant between the two? Especially when you consider how many wills of God there are. If there's only one will of God, then what's the deal with father and son coming together to make a covenant if there's just one eternal perfect will of God? Another issue. So those are my uh, philosophical reasons for why I uh, disagree with that. But I think just the first line on its own is enough. The, the Bible doesn't mention that covenant. I want to revisit the uh, Michael Horton quote just for a moment, though. Uh, the Michael Horton quote about this covenant of redemption and the prominence that it has in the, their whole system of theology. He said that this covenant of redemption, it's a pact. It's made between the persons of the Godhead. And he goes on to say that the elect were given to the Son as a reward for the obedience that he would re- render on their behalf. So, a lot of things to see in that statement. The elect were given to the Son as a reward for the obedience that He would render on their behalf. So, first thing we can take out from here is a limiting factor of atonement, which, of course, uh, pretty much every covenant theologian is going to be a five-point Calvinist. I'm sure there are some that aren't, but the vast majority are. And... He says specifically here, Horton does, that Jesus is going to be doing his work on their behalf. There's not a view in Horton's theology here that he would be doing this for the whole world, literally, but only for the elect. He also uses the word obedience. I think that's the second thing that really jumps out to me. The elect were given to the Son as a reward for the obedience that he, Jesus, would render on their behalf. And he defines that by saying, in both his life and his death, as well as in his resurrection. Now, this is something we'll get into next time, but notice it doesn't just say death and resurrection, it says life. So Jesus' life, his living, and what we'll see next time, his law-keeping on their behalf earned them salvation, and so as a reward for doing that for them, he is given them, the elect, that is. He is given the elect, right? And I will also say, the end of this quote, this is the part from page 80, this part I think is really important. He says, before the creation and the fall, the elect were in Christ. Now he says there's a difference between the divine purpose for history and in history itself. So the elect were not in Christ in history. They weren't born as believers. Okay, is essentially what he's saying. But that in the divine purpose of history, the elect have always been in Christ. And this is a really, really interesting discussion to have with a Reformed guy. And I've had this conversation before. Were the elect on their way to hell before they believed in Christ? There's an interesting question. Uh, There's really not a great way to answer that from any theological perspective, because now we're talking about what's bound up in the mind of God, and we can only know what's been revealed. But I've had some Reformed guys say, no, the wrath of God was never abiding on the elect. They were never hellbound, like the song. Um, uh, I'm going to forget the song. It was really, it was really popular 10 years ago, and it's still pretty popular. Um, 
As I ran my hellbound race, indifferent to the cost, you looked upon my helpless state and led me to the cross. Um, all I have is Christ. Whew, that feels better. Okay, all, the song, All I Have is Christ, the song you've been screaming at your uh, earbuds for the last 30 seconds. As I ran my hellbound race, there are some reformed guys who will say, we weren't actually running a hellbound race because we were already in Christ from God's perspective and we were absolutely always going to be redeemed by God. Therefore, we were never actually hellbound. That's something to think about when it comes to the covenant of redemption. I think it's it's interesting. All right, well, let's move on to the next covenant. That was covenant number one. Remember, there are three main covenants when it comes to covenant theology. Let's move on to covenant number two, the covenant of works. We looked at the covenant of redemption. And now we'll look at the covenant of works. Covenant of works is defined this way. In the garden, God made a covenant with Adam wherein it was agreed that if he maintained righteous works only and personally and perfectly and perpetually, he would continue on to enjoy eternal life forever. So the covenant of works is that When Adam was in the garden, God made a covenant with him based on his good deeds, his good works, that if he were to only do good works forever, he'll live forever. That's really nutshell version what that is. John Frame, another guy who's well qualified to speak on covenant theology, he said this about the covenant of works. And this is, again, my my head is cutting it off. I could move things around here on the fly, but I'm not going to. Um, This is from his systematic theology, page 63. John Frame says, I believe that the existence of a covenant specifically between God and man is implicit in Genesis 1 and 2, though there is no record of God's formally announcing it as in other covenants. I think that's pretty significant, don't you? There is no record of God's announcing this covenant. I would say the same thing about the covenant of redemption as far as it being an official covenant. But here on the covenant of works, John Frame admits there's no record of God's formally announcing this. He goes on to say, Theologians have asked what would have happened if Adam had kept this special commandment rather than disobeying it. But strangely, this text does not explicitly mention any blessing of obedience. Well, the text doesn't mention the covenant at all. I mean, right? That's that's the problem, um, as he had just admitted. Well, um, there's also a quote that I have from Tom Hicks that's important to look at here. This is from an article he wrote for Founders. Tom Hicks says this about the covenant of works. Reformed covenant theology teaches that the New Testament shows that God made a covenant with Adam in the Garden of Eden. Because God created Adam in his own image, he was created in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness citing Ephesians 4.24 and Colossians 3.10. Which means, listen to this, this means that Adam had the work of the moral law, the Ten Commandments, imprinted on his nature. Adam was given this covenant of works to maintain good works perpetually so that he will live forever. And the good works that God had in view when he made this covenant with Adam was that he would remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, that he would not covet his neighbor's wife. (laughs) Interesting, huh? Pretty, pretty interesting. Okay, one more. Uh, This is from R.C. Sproul talking about the covenant of works. My head really cuts this one off, but this is from... Uh, an article that I accessed on the website, apuritansmind.com. R.C. Sproul says this about the covenant of works, a long quote, so hang in there. Still talking about the covenant of works here and tying it to the obedience that Christ would maintain in his life for the elect. Sproul says, I don't think there's any more important text in all the New Testament that defines the work of Jesus than this one that Jesus was sent to fulfill all righteousness. So this is talking about his baptism with John the Baptist when Jesus said he was doing this to fulfill all righteousness. Okay, I resume. Uh, Sproul says, What that meant to the Jew was to obey every jot and tittle of the law. Because now Jesus is not acting in his baptism for himself, but for his people. 
And if his people are required to keep the Ten Commandments, he keeps the Ten Commandments. What does Jesus do? He obeys the law perfectly, receives the blessing, and not the curse. But there's a double imputation that we will look at later at the cross where my sin is transferred to his account. My sin is carried over and laid upon him in the cross. But in our redemption, his righteousness is imputed to us, which righteousness he wouldn't have if he didn't live this life of perfect obedience. So um, the covenant of works, which says we must keep the Ten Commandments in order to live forever, Jesus comes and he keeps the Ten Commandments and therefore earns righteousness that he wouldn't have had otherwise. And that righteousness is what gets transferred to us so that we can be saved. Examine this, the Sproul quote there, and I've got another one that I'll share with you next week that I think is equally eyebrow-raising. Maybe you're not raising your eyebrows. I am. There's my face. Eyebrow-raising face. If you're not watching, that made no sense. Um, okay, I just disagree with where he's coming from on that. So let's get to the, uh, let's get to the critique here. The critique of the covenant of works, I'm sure you can imagine some of what I would say. Well, here it is. Number one, such a covenant is not described in the Bible. <laughs> Didn't see that coming, did you? Such a covenant is not described in the Bible. Although it is true that if Adam never sinned, he would have lived forever, this does not necessitate a covenant of works wherein eternal life is earned by man. All right, that's about all I have to say about that. Um, if you're interested more in this subject of the covenant of works, you can check out the Bible Sojourner podcast where my friend Peter Gaiman examined the one Old Testament text that they have when it comes to the covenant of works, which is Hosea 6-7. I think it's 6-7. Pretty sure it's 6-7. Where it says, they transgressed the covenant like Adam. Well, that's kind of interesting. That's an interesting verse. Can you take that verse and say, well, this means that God made a covenant of works with Adam that if he kept up good works, he would earn for himself eternal life. Oh, boy. I don't think so. All right. And finally, the third covenant to look at today. We're looking at hermeneutics and the three covenants of covenant theology. The third one is the covenant of grace. The covenant of grace. So we've examined the covenant of redemption and the covenant of works. And now the covenant of grace. Covenant of grace is defined this way, by me, my words. After the fall, God made a covenant with Adam and his progeny, providing salvation in Christ. It was progressively disclosed through other covenants. Some who hold to covenant theology say the Noahic, Abrahamic, Old, Davidic, Priestly, and New Covenants are administrations of the singular covenant of grace. Reformed Baptists say only the new covenant should be equated with the covenant of grace. Okay, so this one's quite a bit more confusing here. Uh, covenant of grace made with Adam and his progeny after the fall. The hope of salvation in Christ communicated to Adam after the fall so that he and his sons and his son's sons would believe in the grace of God in covenant. And that all these other covenants, as God makes a covenant with Noah, Abraham, uh, through Moses with the nation of Israel, etc., uh, David, that's a big one, those are subsets of the covenant of grace. Or if you're a Reformed Baptist, you're going to say, well, actually, only the new covenant is to be equated with the covenant of grace. So it gets a little complicated, and you get disagreements between, like, James White and Doug Wilson on this kind of stuff, right, to give two names, for example. Or you could say uh, you get disagreements between Alistair Begg and Ligon Duncan on this. All right, so um, let's uh, look at a couple quotes. I got, I got a couple quotes on this one. So this is the Westminster Confession of Faith, Article 7, Section 3. Describing the covenant of grace. Man, by his fall, having made himself incapable of life by that covenant of works, the Lord was pleased to make a second, commonly called 
the covenant of grace, wherein he freely offers unto sinners life and salvation by Jesus Christ, requiring of them faith in him that they may be saved, and promising to give unto all those that are ordained unto eternal life his Holy Spirit to make them willing and able to believe. So you have the covenant of works popping back up here. Because Adam failed in the covenant of works, the Lord was pleased to make a second covenant. And now this one's of grace. Works didn't work out. God knew it wouldn't work out. Adam's just along for the ride on this, and he failed. Well, God shows up in Adam's failure and gives him grace, a new covenant of grace. And in this new covenant of grace, he freely offers to all sinners from this moment forward, life and salvation by Jesus Christ, requiring faith in him. Now, do I disagree with the fact that salvation has always been by grace through faith? No. The Bible teaches that. Salvation has always been by grace through faith. But do I disagree that there was a covenant made, a covenant of grace? I do disagree with that. And we'll get into my reasons why here in just a moment. I've got a couple more quotes on the covenant of grace from Reformed guys. This is O. Palmer Robbins, Robertson, not Robinson, Robertson from The Christ of the Covenants, page 206. Covenant theology understands the whole of history after man's fall into sin as unifying under the provisions of the covenant of grace, beginning with the first promise to Adam in sin and continuing throughout history to the consummation of the ages. God orders all things in view of his singular purpose of redeeming a people to himself. So he ties the covenant of grace to the covenant of redemption here. He, he does indirectly mention the covenant of works too. Adam is in sin. He's failed the covenant of works. God shows up to him, promises him salvation by grace, and God orders all things in view of the singular purpose of redeeming a people, the covenant of redemption, the elect. He orders all things in view of that singular purpose of redeeming a people to himself. And then uh, finally, there's a quote here from Ligon Duncan also. And this is from the website thirdmill.org, where I got this. While Reformed theologians acknowledge that there are aspects of the covenant of Moses or the covenant of law, which reflect some of the language and ideas of the covenant of works, nevertheless, the covenant of law or the covenant of Moses or the Mosaic economy is squarely within the stream of the covenant of grace. It is not an alternate option to the covenant of works given to us by God in the Old Testament. It is a part of the covenant of grace. And so this is a really, really interesting part of this whole conversation, is you've got covenant theology saying God made a covenant of works with Adam. He failed. He shows up. He gives him grace. But then later on through Moses, you have the covenant of law showing up, a very conditional covenant. If you obey the law, this will happen. If you disobey the law, this will happen. And that was what Israel was under from the time of Moses until the time of Jesus. They have this law hanging over their heads. So you go to the covenant theologian and you say, wait a second. I thought they were under grace. I thought there was by grace through faith and that there was an official covenant that said it was all of grace. So what's the deal with the covenant of law? And they have to say that somehow, in some way, at least from a Presbyterian perspective, that the law is of grace. Well, if you've ever read Paul, you know that he tends to pit law and grace against each other, doesn't he? So that makes for some pretty interesting conversations. Well, what's my critique of the covenant of grace? All right, what's my critique? Let's get to it. Number one, such a covenant is not described in the Bible. You didn't see that coming, did you? <laughs> the covenant of grace is not described in the Bible. Although it is true that God showed Adam grace and made a promise of redemption in Genesis 3, he did not use covenantal language. Additionally, the New Testament declares that God made multiple covenants to Israel, which they still possess. 
rather than a singular covenant of grace. And I reference Romans 9.4 and Ephesians 2.12. So for those who are Reformed who say, well, look, you've got, yeah, the covenants made to Noah and to Abraham and to David, etc., etc. Those are all just subsets of the one covenant of grace. I say, that's not the way the New Testament talks about these things. Paul says, to Israel, belong, present tense, possess the covenants, plural. And a big one of those that often gets forgotten is the priestly covenant that you can read about in Numbers 25, made with Phineas and his progeny. And so, yeah, I've got a problem with that one too, in that it's not described in the Bible, and it actually goes against the language used by biblical authors. All right. There are my critiques of the three covenants. That's That's been a lot for today. The covenant of redemption, the covenant of works, and the covenant of grace. I don't believe in any of them. Zero for three. There are three covenants offered by Reformed theology. I balk at all of them, you could say. Well, what do I believe then when it comes to, when it comes to covenants? Well, um, let's see if this will work. Uh let me pull up another chart, one final chart. Here we go. And uh, let's look at, real briefly, the covenants given to us in the Bible. The Noahic covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, the Old Covenant, the Priestly covenant, and the Davidic covenant. I like making charts and tables. Here's one that I made, and I'll go ahead and put a download link in the description here for this. It walks through, this chart walks through six covenants offered in the pages of the text, pages of scripture, that describe God's promises and God's requirement of man. It starts back here with the Noahic covenant, and following progressive revelation, it leads up to this amazing new covenant. And I have described here with these six covenants that we get from the text of scripture, the key texts that define them, the type, whether it's conditional or unconditional, who God made this covenant with, who the benefactors of these covenants are, the oaths that God makes in the covenants, the status of the covenants, whether they continue on or die out. Spoiler alert, the only one that dies out is the only conditional one. That's the covenant that was given through Moses based on law, and then a summary of each one. So I've really had to kind of mangle the video here if you're watching along with the video, but the bottom of the chart describes each covenant in summary. So for the Noahic covenant, this is the, this is the promise. There will never be a flood again, as in the days of Noah, though the world will be just as evil as the days of Noah. In the end, God will destroy the world with fire, not water. Okay. For the Abrahamic covenant, Israel's land ownership is unconditional. They were given a certain plot of land. Yet occupancy in their land became contingent upon their obedience to the law. The promise will be realized in the new covenant. Okay. And it's, that's really just focusing on the land. Um, I also have in this section on the Abrahamic covenant when it comes to the oaths that God basically promised three things, that Abraham will have countless descendants, his descendants will own the land of Canaan forever, and that Abraham and all who bless him will be blessed. The Mosaic covenant, or the covenant that is conditional based on law, the summary of that is that the sons of Jacob were to inhabit their land and enjoy blessings in it if they performed God's commands, keeping his law as it was revealed through Moses. And this covenant is replaced later on by the new covenant. You have the priestly covenant, the one that I say that's often forgotten from Numbers 25. After Phineas displayed a zeal for righteousness in Israel, God made an oath that his offspring would serve as priests forever. God has said they will even minister in Israel in the future Davidic kingdom. Very interesting. The Davidic covenant. Here's the summary of that. Made under the regulations of the old covenant, these promises, and I have those promises listed above, that 
David's house or his dynasty will be everlasting, his kingdom will be everlasting, and his throne or rule will be everlasting. Well, these promises will be realized in the new covenant. There will be a people ruled forever by the son of David in this forever kingdom. And Ezekiel tells us that David will play a prominent role. He'll be a prince who will be making offerings for himself and for the people. Another interesting element of the Old Testament promises. And then finally, the new covenant. The summary of the new covenant is this. It's the only covenant with salvation promises. It's inaugurated in the church, but awaits a future fulfillment when Israel will be saved and restored in their land. All things are fulfilled in this covenant. Woo! I told you, it's just a lot. There are a lot of words. It's just going to take a while. Maybe this is an episode you need to listen to again. But as we examine the differences between covenant theology and dispensational theology, I hope this helps you start thinking in the right direction, at least, as to what those differences are. These are big differences. They're meaningful differences. This is in the realm of secondary doctrine, as our chart describes. I am no way saying that Reformed theologians are to be avoided at all costs. I'm no way saying that they are evil or unredeemed or whatever. I am, though, saying we've got some pretty big differences, and you need to be aware of them. And it's probably going to determine who you read and how you read those authors. Uh, So, there we go. There's part one, hermeneutics and the covenants. Next week, we'll be looking at, not next week, next episode, whenever that is, we'll be looking at Israel, the church, limited atonement, and the role of the law. Because we also disagree on those things. All right, thanks for joining me today. Doing theology, doing some heavy lifting. Hope that's been helpful. If you've got comments, and I know you do, and or questions, feel free to reach out. Show at dotheology.com or just comment on this YouTube video or post wherever you're seeing this. Give us a comment. And uh, I would love to interact with some audience responses as we go along through this. Okay, thanks for listening. God bless.